I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Welcome, everybody, to the Awakening Now podcast. This is Lama Surya Das, the American Lama, and we're here on the Ram Das-inspired Be Here Now network. Welcome. And today, I have a very dear and, dare I say, old friend, although he's really timeless, is Ken Wilbur, perhaps the foremost transpersonal psychologist and thinker of our generation at I assume you're somewhat familiar with his multitude of brilliant works, many works, and all of high quality. Although one could have many questions about them, and I will try to um, heckle some answers out of him. But <laughs> Ken has all the answers, and I'm the question man. So, you know, there's hope for this interview. And Ken, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're probably in the middle of writing five books. Etc. Knowing you, what are you working on these days, and how are you, old buddy? Uh, doing well. Uh, I'm I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I, anything for you, my friend. Thank you. Uh, and I do continue writing like crazy. Yes. Um, some of the generic topics are uh, central ideas that have interested you and I um, essentially our entire uh, adult lives. And that is really what is it that's involved in this whole process of waking up, of, of finding our higher, deeper, ever-present fullness. And, and uh, what was at one point often called our highest potential. And it's both a potential and it's something that's, in a certain sense, ever-present. And so balancing these two sort of seemingly a little bit contradictory. They're actually just a paradox. Um, 
but um, one Zen master put it that if in the Tao, if in our meditation practice, in our search, uh, searching to uh, um, manifest our Buddha nature or Buddha mind, if in the Tao there's any discipline, the completion of the discipline marks the destruction of the Tao. But if there is no discipline, one remains an idiot. So we have this, um, you, we, we're not really gaining anything. We're not, we're not creating a Buddha nature that we all don't have right now. And so if you use the Zen term and you have a Satori, um, then that is an actual event that happens. But one of the fundamental pieces of information that tends to come with that is that the thing that you're realizing is something that has been present all along. And in a certain sense, you've known it all, of, all along. So the Satori itself isn't really adding anything, but you have to have Satori to realize you don't need Satori. So that's a kind of a, a paradox of what we're doing. So you and I have been exploring this for a long time. And in terms of just the actual path itself, um, even though in a certain sense unnecessary, and like the Prajnaparamita sutras say all the time, if you could only realize enlightenment is unattainable, then you'd be enlightened. <laughs> so you got it. Um, but that whole practice itself, the process itself, what helps that realization? What can make that go more effectively, um, more comprehensively? And we keep finding that there are um, new areas that we have to keep exploring that as profound and important and absolutely central as the core of the great spiritual traditions are, we do keep learning new stuff. And that tends to at least help flush out and, and uh, expand in certain ways our own capacities for realization and the depth of our realization, what it is that, that, that we are um, bringing forth or manifesting. And just, just even give a, a, a really simplistic example. Um, most of the great spiritual traditions have some idea of things like defiled emotions or the emotions that are um, negative and that can tend to obscure our already enlightened nature. And then many of them have profound ways, certainly Tibetan Buddhism, for transforming those negative emotions, those defiled emotions. So you can take anger, and if you go into it with a pure awareness, you can transmute it into its corresponding transcendental wisdom, its uh, divine clarity in, in that sense. But one of the things that the traditions didn't have as good an understanding of is the stuff that, uh, starting really only about 100 years ago, people like Freud and his inner circle of Alfred Adler and Carl Jung, Otto Rock, and these folks were actually studying what happens when you take an emotion, negative or positive, and you actually dynamically repress it. You actually seal it out of awareness. So that even if your awareness can expand in a type of ultimate unity consciousness, if there's this brick wall put up 
against that emotion, then that's not automatically going to get released. And so we do have to, and of course, many of the uh, modern approaches in this country do attempt to combine a meditative practice with some sort of psychotherapeutic component mm -hmm. or aspect. And that's certainly something that you've looked into. Um, and that just continues to be one of the, um, one of the major concerns of, of my own work. Uh, and one of the reasons I call it integral is it's an attempt to take what seem to be really important fundamental issues. Centrally is the simple actual path of waking up itself. But then we, can, we have these other sort of adjunct areas like cleaning up or psychotherapeutic stuff. And then the things that we've learned from modern developmental psychology that, that you really can't see by introspecting. And so virtually none of the, of the great spiritual traditions have, have an understanding of those. And we call those aspects growing up, but um, just keeping an eye out on how all of those are important um, that's sort of one of the major things that I, um, that I continue, continue doing. And I've, uh, I did about uh, four books have come out in the last uh, couple of years on um, what was called the religion of tomorrow. Um, and that was looking at uh, uh, a fully comprehensive spiritual system that we take all of these uh, factors uh, into account in terms of helping us wake up to our full and complete potential. Uh, and then I did one little uh, side track of a book um, called Trump and a Post-Truth World, <laughs> which was looking, looking at that um, from all of these larger uh, perspectives and finding something hopefully interesting to say about, about that. Uh, yes, you did. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that particular issue, but there was so much commentary on it. I figured I'd jump in and yeah. say a few things on it. No, that was welcome. Um, you know, your religion of tomorrow came out a couple of years ago, so it's it's already like yesterday. So I'm interested in awakening and nowness awareness, especially of Dzogchen which therefore I have to ask you, so what is the religion of tomorrow today? Or what is the religion or the really the awakefulness, you know, the, the way of awakening today? And in the, the, the new now has gotten pretty old. People have been yeah. talking about it again for a long time. So how do we keep it fresh? And I, I strive to you know, ride the quest, crest of like surf or ride the crest of the breaking wave. Right. This moment, every moment, only moment. And you coined, I believe, with my desultory research, very minimal. I think you coined the term in our uh, time, always already, meaning always already perfect, which is right. consonant with Advaita Vedanta and right. non-dual traditions like Dzogchen and non-dual Mahamudra. Right. Um, we see it as absolute and relative as being complementary before right. you use the words contradictory. So for some of our listeners, you know, these Zen conundrums and all, really are meant to break down the habit of rely, over-relying on thought, not right. being anti-intellectual, but 
to go beyond the conceptual mind into the intuitive mind, the spiritual mind, beyond the mind, the heart mind, pure wakefulness. Any word fails, but is a sweet. So I think this always already combined with some notion of character development or mentioning up or psychological awareness, right. skeletons out of our closets. And of course, not doing that spiritual bypass where we right. were the unwanted parts is very important. And since you coined that phrase, uh, and I often hear criticism of you about that because people say in the you know old world, I, I grew up spiritually in right. India and so on in, in ways. So, you know, the, Ken doesn't talk enough about the relative practices, how to mench up character development, developing the virtues like generosity or, or humility or patience. I think patience, Paramita, is the most important of the 10 panacean virtues of right. the Bodhisattva. Patience, Shanti, which also means acceptance, tolerance, peacemaking. So what are your thoughts on that? And you've t- wrote a book, I believe, and I know you've talked about the fourth turning of the wheel. Meaning your evolutionary dharma, and um, of course Dzogchen is, and Mahamudra is called the fourth turning of the wheel in Tibetan. But I, I won't, you know, I understand. Heckle you that about now because maybe your book needs to call the fifth turning in its next edition. Yeah, yeah. Evolutionary enlightenment is not a concept that the East is has easily heard. I assure you. No, that's true. Well, um, <clears throat> I have addressed. I mean, one of the things that um, um, is, I think, helpful to keep in mind is many of the great um, paths of, of uh, enlightenment, paths waking up, do make a distinction in what they call the two truths. There's uh, ultimate truth and there's relative truth. Um, and ultimately, of course, they maintain that those are not two. So they ultimately can't. Right. It's like yin and yang, one within the light and shadow. Right. Um, but it's also the case that, that we can see some uh, distinctions between those. So, so, for example, if you go back uh, a couple thousand years um, to some of the people that were having some of the first fully um, realized, fully um, uh, deeply awakened, uh, and I'll just call it Satori, just, just. Yeah, that's fine. Really. Um, Breakthrough. But uh, there was a time uh, where a lot of the uh, original people having these Satori's, one of the things that happens with Satori is that um, you lose that sort of sense of solidarity of everything being fixed and stable. And it it becomes a kind of transparent openness. Um, And it's just as important there's no longer any fundamental separation between you and everything that's arising. And so that really is make me one with everything. Um, so what would happen is you could be, you could have this kind of Satori 2000, 3000 years ago. But if you thought the earth was flat and you had a Satori, you'd still think the earth was flat. It's just, you'd be one with it, but you'd still think it was flat. And you'd also look up and you see the sun and you would think that the sun's going around the earth. So the point is ultimate truth doesn't necessarily change a lot or give you a lot of information on relative truth. 
Mm-hmm. So you can have a Satori who won't tell you anything about atoms or molecules yeah. or cells or any of that, won't tell you anything about evolutionary unfolding. So, so but these are still important mm-hmm. uh, realities. And certainly the case when it comes to, on the relative side of the street, the types of things that have a direct impact on our own awareness, our own sense of identity, our own particular uh, virtues, our own particular um, positive capacities. And, and those are important. And actually what I've done is try to expand the number of practices that we need to include with our ultimate awakening. So even if you come to the six to 10 paramitas uh, in a book that I just um, recently done called Integral Meditation, um, I looked at things like um, stages of developmental psychology and looking at those because you don't find those in any of the great spiritual Mm -hmm. systems. And then I looked at also um, the possibility of multiple intelligences. Now we do have some indication of that in the traditions, um, but this is some very, very specific types of information coming along. And what it's saying is you can take your enlightened awareness, but it can be expressed through upwards of a dozen different types of intelligences. And again, simply having a fundamental Satori doesn't necessarily make you an expert in all of these uh, other other And that's and then I included the paramitas as examples of multiple intelligences. And then what I added was instead of just sort of looking at the paramitas and saying it's important to include those, which I absolutely think it is, but it's also important to realize that using Western developmental psychology measures, we can actually measure the relative growth in people as they move through each of those parameters. Mm-hmm. So I'm not by any stretch trying to say we don't need that. I'm actually adding more detailed aspects of mm-hmm. understanding that. So that, that can actually help us move through those um, and, and, um, and guide and ourselves, and guide each other, understand, understand the process also, and guide ourselves and each other. And not just think it depends on his end master or somebody hitting us on the head with a stick or a lightning bolt. But yeah, refine well. refine our process of evolving and awakening, and also integrating and being down in our body and in right in the earth and so on. Right. Well, those are um, of course as we um, take some of these traditions, move them into a new culture. Um, and this started in America, particularly in the 60s, part of the revolution of the 60s, mm-hmm. and these. And then you were at that period off doing one of the most uh, complete and extensive and authentic and genuine spiritual searches that I'm aware of. Um, I mean, you, you basically have met... <laughs> you know, almost every one of the great living spiritual teachers uh, across traditions, and you didn't just run into them, you took them all seriously. 
I mean, you actually try to incorporate what you learned from each of them. It's extremely impressive what you have done. Um, I've always Thank admired you. that. And I'm also especially glad that you are becoming even more um, personally sharing of some of these interior uh, uh, events that you've gone through because you are a, a, a truly a, a living monument of various types of spiritual wisdom. And so I think it's incredibly important what you're doing. I, I don't mean to slobber all over you and all that, but I just- No, thank you, but I appreciate that. And I'm hoping to be uh, put as a living monument next to Trump on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> but um, I do want to say, I appreciate what you're saying about being more personal and making it my own and also more open about my own background and visions and spiritual awakenings right. and things. Uh, partly so because it's true and I'm 68 now and it's time to tell my truth and then go away. And also, you know, back to the forest floor, like a mushroom upturned in the forest when I'm ready to go. But partly also so people can understand they can do it too. This is not just something from ancient times that if I can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. And right. it's possible today. Even like my jokey title, um, I think it was my last book probably. Who can remember? Awake, uh, <laughs> um, make me one with everything. Right. It's, it, of course, the punchline of a joke, and we're not going to go into that now, and everybody's heard it, but I want to say, really what got me to do that was it was spring, and I was walking in, in the woods here in Thoreauville near Walden Pond, but just because I live here, not because, you know, it's more sacred than anywhere else. It's just got a great right. vibe and history to it and lineage, but I felt like spring, that the earth was growing up through me like chlorophyll was going up through the green plants, reaching right. to the sun. The right. spiritual chlorophyll of bodhicitta or of way-seeking mind, as they call right. it, was, you know, like the earth was also growing up through me. Right. And I was part of it and one with everything. And right. not one just all mixed together with a Cuisinart, but in the great diversity of it all, the unity of the diversity. Right. And that inspired me also to talk more about a little my own experiences, not just with the great masters, but visions or, or um, awakenings or <clears throat> feeling the whole body is my universe and all is the whole universe is my body and all beings and my heart, mind, and right? Things like that. And it really changed my natural activity relating to others and to the world as not other right through their eyes as well as my own feeling what they feel you know right. people talk about mind reading but i found if you stop your own mind and chatter you see the other's minds moving much clearer absolutely it's like you know when your children are lying to you because you've got a you know bigger mind and more experience it's hard for them to fool you right now in that in that book that you mentioned make me one with everything uh you actually mentioned in that book that um, up to this point, you did have a, a kind of, in a sense, in keeping with the Tibetan tradition, a little bit of a reticence about talking about personal mm -hmm. Yes, my experiences. Yeah. Um, but that you had uh, on, on reflection and over the years, you had decided to start opening 
that up. And that book was kind of a statement that that was um, a, a bit of a, a little bit of a shift in, in your approach, not in your fundamental ideas yeah. or principles, yeah. but just in the presentation of them. And then in that book itself, you go through a large number of areas that were particularly involved with personal types of practice. You go through uh, uh, yoga relationships, um, you go through Tang Lin, you go through now presencing, um, you talk about just that, one with everything, and how that fundamentally shifts your core sense of who mm -hmm. and what you are. And of course, that's that fundamental, absolute, ultimate truth that doesn't change, and that it doesn't evolve. It, it was present at the Big Bang, it was present a billion years ago, it's present today. That's what doesn't change. And what does change is the relative manifestations as it continues to express itself and unfold. And so what we have to do is, is indeed make sure that that which is emptiness is not other than form, and that which is form is not other than emptiness. And while the emptiness is ever present, the form continues to unfold and evolve. And that's what we have to kind of keep up, uh, mm -hmm. keep up with. And so even Buddhism itself continued to sort of track its own unfolding, hence first turning, second turning, third turning, fourth turning. And yes, by the way, I actually said fourth turning belonged to things like Vajrayana and, and, and Tantra. Um, so, so that's important. And in a sense, that's what both of our, our lives ha has, has been doing, is try to take, you know, what are those fundamental, unbelievable treasures that we've been given? And then how do we make sure that we don't lose them? And one of the ways we don't lose them is by keeping up with the evolving form in which it must appear and, and in, in which it must be attractive to. We must have something that people want as we go forward. And can relate to. I think that's the purpose of the different turnings. That's why evolutionary enlightenment stands up as an analysis. It's not like it was all there at the beginning, all clear and explained. Right. The ultimate has always been there, but in the relative, it's exactly. evolving in the different turns and meaning the different cycles of narrow path and universal path, and then moving from purification more to transformation, then to transmutation, then to natural liberation or automatic liberation, as some new translator called it. I like that. Right. Yeah. I, I, that is, you know, like waves right. automatically liberating themselves as they roll. Yes. Yes. Not having to be ironed out. Right. Right. Yeah. And one of the ways, um, it, it's, it's a loose kind of metaphor, but it, it's one of the ways to think about it, is um, particularly if we sort of look at um, one of the components that a realization of emptiness can, um, can help bring to a person is a sense of vast freedom and absolute liberation from all constraints. Yeah. And the constraints come from the limited identities that you have, you know, this self versus other. As Upanishads say, wherever there's other, there's fear. So we have all of that, you know, self-contraction, egoic fear, dukkha, suffering. And then when we realize that pure radical emptiness of all of that, there's a deep, deep freedom in being released from those limitations and constraints and dukkha and and, and yeah. suffer it's a huge relief 
Yes, But then there's also the flip side of that is that we're not this, not that, we're free of this, we're free of that. And then when we become one with that, the flip side of it, then emptiness is not other than form. And so there we become, it's not so much freedom as it is fullness. And both of those, of course, are important. But the freedom, because emptiness per se, the ground, Buddha nature doesn't change. Then a person that would have a fundamental realization 2,000 years ago, and a person that would have that realization today, they're both equally free. One isn't more free than another. But because the world of form keeps evolving, that world keeps getting fuller. So a realization today is not freer than a realization 2,000 years ago, but it is fuller. There's more of the manifest world um, than, than there ever was before. And so that made me one with everything. The oneness stays the same, but the everything gets more complex. <laughs> and, uh, uh, uh. and so it really does. Um, on the one hand, it really is always already. And then the other hand, and that keeps manifesting mm-hmm. itself in yes. this. The damn shit. Well, that's the joy. You know, that's like the joyous meditation. That's like the joy of creativity. That's like God delighting in just, you know, dancing and expressing herself. So I'm all for that. And that is like, I think somebody called the tantric distinction rather than avoiding or purifying. uh, It's all part of it and everything is it. And what did Ginsburg sing? Holy, holy, holy. Right, holy, 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 and everything is holy. Right, just as it is. Down, down with that. He was very uh, awoke. You've talked about levels and stages, and a few other things that you know you've brought to the culture. Um, It's very challenging for many people when you say, like, enlightenment today would be uh, deeper or broader or more complex or more penetrating. Right. Of course, people talk about the prophets and the saints as if it all started with them and, you know, it's all downhill from there. But um, there is another side to this. There's definitely another side to this, isn't there? Well, sure. There are a lot of things that um, as uh, history continued to unfold and in some ways, evolutionary trends continued so that we do see increasing positive things coming into existence, um, but that wasn't the whole story. So we also tended to lose things that were truly important. And in that sense, even though we're be, world's, things are becoming more complex, like technology is becoming mm-hmm. more complex and information, trans- right. how, all of that's becoming much more complex, but there are aspects quicker. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a problem. Um, so we want to, and that's one of the things that has, I mean, really one of the big, biggest concerns that I've had since I actually first found out about the various paths of the great liberation. Almost all the religion that I got as I was being brought up was typical, almost mythic, literal, fundamentalist Protestantism. Uh, I got religion if I believed 
that Moses really did part the Red Sea. And if I believe Lot's wife really was turned into a pillar of salt. And if I believe the one and only son of the one and only creator of the entire universe was born of a biological version, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I was around uh, 17, 18 years old, I ran across D.T. Suzuki's three-volume set, Essays in Zen Buddhism. And I read it and I was stunned. There was this thing called Satori. There was this thing called Awakening. This is what religion was supposed to be about. And for the next three days, my primary response, it should have been absolute exaltation. It was rage. I was enraged, like three <laughs> days straight. And I was so pissed because I kept saying, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? I know. It was, just, it was unbelievable. And then my concern from then on has been, how do we make sure that that type of treasure not only doesn't get lost, but how it can indeed become more a part of uh, a type of cultural uh, wisdom that we would have because that yes. fundamental mythic literal stuff that just won't work and almost no educated person believes that if you take a poll northern europeans for example the percentage of them that believe in uh standard orthodox christianity and the mythic literal components in the middle ages about 95 percent of the population believed that today Northern Europe, it's 11% of the population believes that. Religion- It's a total figure ground shift. Yeah, to, absolutely. To, to, it's not the norm, it's the abnorm. Right, no. and part of my point about if we really are going to have a religion of tomorrow, something's going to have to happen. One of the things that's going to have to happen is that we make those waking up realizations central to what religion does. Um, I mean, Lord Christianity, as you well know, when it first started out the first century or so, it was mystical experiences everywhere. Mm -hmm. The main concern of the New Testament is that it was written in Greek. And so the word was metamorphosis, enlightenment, awakening. That's what they were interested in. By the time the Catholic... So what happened? What? So well, what happened? By about the recent. question. And what's happening now? of the yeah. same kind with this newly discovered right. Eastern wisdom or et cetera. About three centuries later, as the Catholic Church became more the sort of codified institution that yeah. it was, it started to take all of those individual personal enlightenment experiences and converted them into their mythic literal correlates. So you had things like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and that was just a list of myths that you had to believe in. And so if you believe in there's uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then all of the other uh, myths that are taken to be true, uh, and if you woke up one day, wanted to become a Christian, and went out and found a lo local bishop, there would just be a list of things. You could read it, say, yes, science, bottom line, because you, mm -hmm. and now you're a Christian. Whereas previously, what you do is you'd go out and you'd find a teacher who was enlightened. And the word was sanctus, who was sanctified, who had this metamorphosis, as St. Paul summarized it as 
let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. Now, that's how you became a Christian. You had to have that realization. And if you had that realization, then you were sanctus. You were actually sanctified and enlightened and awakened. It might take you a year or two or three of practice to actually have that happen. But then as the church takes over and says, nobody comes to salvation except by way of Mother Church, then Mother Church had a list of beliefs that you had to buy. All you had to do was buy those beliefs, and that was it. That's why I say you could become a Christian one day at that point, whereas previously, you'd actually have to find your own Christ consciousness mm -hmm. that would make you one with everything. That's how you became a Christian. And fundamentally in the West, it hasn't changed that much. That's part of the problem. Of course, as you know, there are a couple of smaller branches mm -hmm. of Christianity that do have contemplative mysticism, and they're still working for a realization of their own Christ consciousness. But that's not what religion in the West means to most no. people. And that's a problem. It's unfortunate we don't hear that kind of preaching about what you quoted from Paul about that your consciousness be one with the source consciousness right. and so on. And of course, that's what we're all about in our Western Dharma movement, not to mention the Buddha within and, you know, the great perfection and. Absolutely. You know, and, and like you growing up Jewish, I never heard about Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah or right. Madani saints, nor was there any direction or energy or aspiration toward that in all my Hebrew school and bar mitzvah training and other things. So of course I sought that elsewhere as the spiritual chlorophyll or the way seeking mind, the bodhicitta was rising right. in this kind of plant. But um, so what's happening today? What What's ossified and what are we stuck with? And how can we break right through to another dimension and get out of the flatlands into the three and four dimensional you know, spiritual world and not just be like a lunar asparagus only developing on one plane, like trying to sit longer. I know many meditators who are trying to sit as long as possible and think as little as possible. And that's like looking at the sky through a straw, as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. Well, one of the things that does seem to be happening is that there are um, a relatively modest but significant number of teachers such as yourself um and i would like i think of myself more as like a pandit not not so yeah. much as a guru but um there are those of us who are, are centrally interested in in putting what's really crucial in spirituality back into spirituality and make sure we get that and that is that fundamental process of metamorphosis of transformation of waking up which is the realization of ever present great perfection and that is good and i think again my version of if religion's going to survive into tomorrow and doesn't become less than 11 percent and then five percent then zero <laughs> um is that it has that kind of core that kind of waking up process so that's important at the same time the the typical fundamentalist mythic literal belief systems those are becoming less and less influential as people become more educated and find that they just don't buy those literal myths anymore they don't think that the bible is the 
absolute word of God and it can never change. And it's all literally true and empirically true and, and all of that. And probably one of the one of the biggest kind of movements we see, and I think there's good news and bad news in this, is that because so much of Western religion was it number one, it was leaving out waking up. And then number two, when it came to, to the relative side of the street, it was coming from relatively low stages of growing up. Um, if you look at like James Fowler's work on, again, this is how you think about spirituality. It's not your direct experience mm -hmm. of spirituality. That would be waking up. But then when you come up with theories about it, you think about it, you have your everyday beliefs, you think about what your ultimate concern is. Those are, those are one of multiple intelligences. Mm -hmm. And so they grow and evolve through various stages. And if you look at the work of James Fowler, for example, he took thousands of um, Westerners and tracked when he asked them about what, what's your ultimate concern? What's your idea of spirit? He found that it went through, like almost all the other multiple intelligences, they all developed through around five, six, seven major stages of development. Um, and you can have a waking up experience with any of those stages. Those are relatively independent. But our, our religious orientation, culture-wise, is still at, well, one of the ways to name these stages of relative spiritual intelligence that Fowler tracked was archaic to magic, to mythic, to rational, to pluralistic, to integral. And so the major dogma of the mythic schools of religion isn't even a very high form of spiritual intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so we have almost no waking up and very low growing up. It's two kind of disasters. So one of the things that we start to see happening a little bit more, which is important, is increasing teachers like yourself that are including waking up and putting that back into the mix. And of course, we have Christian mystics that are doing that and Father Thomas mm -hmm. Keating and so yes. on. I think that's, that's really important. On the other hand, because so much of our spiritual orientation has been so, had these dual deficits, had almost no waking up and very low growing up. Because of that, a lot of the best and brightest, the most highly educated uh, pioneering scientists and medical researchers and environmentalists and all of that, they would start to notice one of the things that they were seeing increasingly in their disciplines is that they started to talk about unified, interwoven realities, not just separate atomic things and events, but whole systems where everything was interwoven with everything else. And this, of course, sounded to them like what the great mystical traditions were saying. Yes, interconnectedness and so on. Indra's uh, web, yes, the cosmic well, web, and so on. Yep, and this would go back to things like the Tao physics or mm -hmm. Deepak Chopra's um, works. Now, the only problem, and quantum mechanics, seems to be the, the thing that everybody looks at. <laughs> and the general notion is that quantum mechanics proves mysticism, <laughs> proves that everything is in really. 
Now, it's not that I'm against that kind of stuff, but there is a major, major difference. And that is with the real waking up practice, you have to take up certain exercises, certain practices, it might be mindfulness, it might be Tonglen, it might be uh, tantric visualization, mm -hmm. whatever. But these are all first person changes that you undertake mm -hmm. to actually, actually literally change your consciousness. Whereas if you study something like quantum mechanics, that's a third person string of mathematical symbols. And so you can learn that, but it, it's not fundamentally changing your consciousness. It's not a practice. It's going to give you a Satori, no matter how much quantum mechanics you study. The same is true of any of the other interwoven sciences that we have. And they're all becoming sort of interwoven because the relative mm -hmm. world is interwoven. But that doesn't necessarily give you an actual waking up experience. But well, that's why we like to stress the experiential and the transformational. And of course, it's no news to you or anyone listening that people today are not voting for or excited about religion unless it's about, you know, the Pope and pedophile priests and all and straightening that out a little bit. Right. Institutional and cultural level, which, of course, has to happen. But people are saying, you know, we're sp I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. Right. Or just, you know, I. I have values. I want to pass on values to my kids, but where can I take them? Right. So I'm thinking a lot about this is how we can bring this more in the mainstream. The mindfulness movement is doing a good job bringing it into the mainstream, although it's extremely um, utilitarian rather than transcendent or transformation oriented. Right. It's like, you know, daily mental floss is good for hygiene. Yeah. So a little mindfulness every morning is good for your mental hygiene, but it's not necessarily going to transform your world and your life. That's right. the Eightfold Path or all the different tantric or other kinds of practices. So how can we wake up today? How can we pass these things on? Timeless wisdom seems like an endangered natural resource. There's not much incentive, you know, material incentive to drive the capitalistic machinery to this, to, dig it up, mine it, refine it, explore it, and so on, right. um, except in the corners of academia or ashrams and meditation centers. The neuroscientists are getting on the bandwagon, like you were mentioning the quantum mechanics. Right. The Tao of physics, that's old. Now it's the new neurodharma of the neuroscientists measuring yeah. the brain waves with their fMRIs and all. But I get the same flavor there a little bit of using science to prove the dharma when we can at the same time, confirm or prove the, the message ourselves by doing a little practice, even just in a few years, as you said. If Christians can transform their consciousness to the Christ consciousness in a few years, why can't we? Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm into the Riz, not just the Buddha, Buddhas. I love the risen Jesus, you know, or anything that's rising. It's all awakening. It's all right. blooming and blossoming. Right. Well, that's why we have a couple of problems. And one of them is to get the message out that, for example, that I got when I first read the, the um, essays in Zen Buddhism. When you were 17. I, yeah. I was, start. I was stunned. And then after I was enraged, then I was ecstatic. I had, my God, this is what I'm going to start doing this. I, and I really did. I mean, you know, it said, like, yeah. like you, I started Center and Quest. So one is that on a larger scale, 
And what I mean by that is so many people, when you say, oh, you're religious, this is what religion is about. People have a very specific idea of what that is. And it's not waking up. It's some mythic belief. Oh, you have to believe that you have the one and only way to think about ultimate God or reality. And um, if, if you're Muslim, then you have to believe that Muhammad was the one and only you know, greatest. Prophet. And, and if, if you're Christian fundamentalist, you have to believe you can't get this uh, awakening unless you accept Jesus Christ as your own personal savior and so on. So most people have something like that in mind and they don't make distinctions. So it's um, for that kind of generalized thinking, what let's say Osama bin Laden was doing with his religion and what Father Thomas Keating is doing with his religion. Yeah. They're both just that, that religious yeah. stuff. And, we, you know, it, it's just we've got an extremely broken, limited, narrow version of what religion is. And that's one of the main things that we have to sort of change by pointing out, well, wait, there is another type of religious mm -hmm. engagement. And that's often what people mean when they say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. This means they just, they don't buy all those religious right. myths and dogmas and orientations, but they do want this sort of more personal awakening spirituality. Of course. Yeah. And people are seeking, people are still are very much seeking. So I'm interested in, in you know holding the space for that seeking whether they're so-called beginners which i don't entirely believe anyone is and or you know more experienced and so that we can awaken together and i think that's very important these days yeah. going from me to we and not just self-help and self-development but right. you know, universal awakening and we're all in this together right. um, I, I since you mentioned father keating um the master of Christian centering prayer. And I should say, for those that are listening, the late father, Thomas Keating, and do look up his book, Christian Centering Prayer, etc. I happened, I was invited to uh, see him, let's say on his deathbed to be um, dramatic, but it is true. And I was at Spencer Abbey in Massachusetts here a week before he breathed his last and we had an hour together. And he's an old friend and even colleague of mine, if I could claim such and he's been interested in Zogchen for many years, so I'm his advisor or expert on that. But he, I said, how are you, Father? And he could hardly talk or move. And he had, was in his 90s and dying from cancer and in, supposedly in pain, but he's not taking any pain medications. And I'm not recommending this to our listeners. I'm describing what this saintly meditation master and mystic did was like. And he said, pain... Yes, body. Sometimes God squeezes me. <laughs> it was like, whoa, that was worth the price of admission or driving across yeah. the country. Yeah. It depends on how you hold it. Yeah. Pain or God, sometimes God squeezing me. That's how close he was to his God. Absolutely. The pain was God squeezing him. Yeah. It he, was like, oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. And he would do that all the time. He was always coming up with those wonderful kinds of just right on the mark, um, uh, hitting the point directly and, and really quite extraordinary. Um, and that's how these things help us, which is why I mentioned this. And people wonder how, a lot, you know, some people, 
they don't get the pleasure out of an, an analyzing and thinking about this. They wonder how it's going to help. And this directly helps with, as you mentioned, dukkha or dissatisfactoriness and misery or trauma and other things that afflict us, even like um, rage and resentment and so on. I'm going to um, wrap up, Ken, but I do want to say how wonderful it is to see you and be with you. And I've been on your podcast and our listeners can find me there and you're on mine now. You can find you there. And we have a lot to do together. And all who are listening are invited, if you're not already, you know, like leading the charge, start leading, waking up where you are and wake others up. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Take the pillow off our heads and, you know, look at the day. Get our heads out of the dark place that sometimes is stuck in. <laughs> and open the heart because it's a beautiful world. I just lost my wife. So I'm going through some things. But I'll tell you, as I always say, thank God for the Dharma. Yeah. Thank God for Buddhism. Even though there's no God in Buddhism, thank God for Buddhism. I think it's, you know, save my ass and save my life and sanity and um, not just the ism of it, but the wisdom of it. The internalization of that is what we need to work for. So I hope that this kind of talk helps all of our friends to seek and not just to be a seeker and a pilgrim, which is important, but also to find, to be finders, finders, keepers. You're right. <laughs> keep yourself well. Right. Absolutely. Don't try to keep temporary stuff. You got it. So, so wonderful to see you and hear you and talk. And Well, blessings to you, my friend. I absolutely love you. I love you too, Ken. Okay, buddy. Take care. I look forward to seeing you in Denver one of these days. You got it. Bye -bye. One, in, one in the heart. Bye-bye.